Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines a new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Man of La Mancha. And the knight with his banners all bravely unfurled Now hurls down his gauntlet to thee But first, how are we doing? Oh, Patty, it feels like it's been a really long time since we last sat down to record the show. It's only been a week, as per usual, uh, but for some reason it seems like I haven't seen you in so long. I'm glad that we were able to catch up before the show. We had a nice little cup of, ooh, five, six, seven, eight coffee. We have had so many musical shout-outs these days that we haven't really had a chance to plug our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. I'm going to I'm gonna take an old-fashioned sip right now. Pat, Patty is lifting her mug. Is that a, That's a Hello Kitty mug. Thank you very much. Uh, mine has a little fox on it, handing a Christmas present to a bunny. Let's put... Cheers, Patty. Yes, thank you. <laughs> cheers. Let's try this. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Oh, that's delicious. It's even... Mine has ice in it right now. I, it's an iced 5678 Coffee. I am so dumb that I didn't think to do that until Patty pointed it out to me. She said, put some ice in the coffee. I said, of course. And so I did, and it's delicious. I have a lot on my mind right up top. Sometimes at the top of these episodes, I don't really know what I want to talk about, but I have a few bullet points that I want to sort of just run right through. We're going we're gonna to marathon through these bullet points here at the top of the show, and then we're going to get into our discussion of Man of La Mancha proper. So I recently took a look at the 2019-2020 season for my college. And I like to keep track of what's going on at my college theatrically. I like to know what shows they're doing. I have not been to my college campus since I graduated in 2008. And I have I, I have always wanted to go back and watch a show. Last year, when they did Beauty and the Beast, I really wanted to go see that, but it wasn't in the cards. This For this next year, though, I they, they are closing out with a show that is just, it's destiny. It's destiny. My boyfriend Chris and I, we have to go. It's it, that is, that we're going to make that be in the cards. And that show is Mamma Mia. That's right, the Abba Juke Box musical that was adapted into the very popular film that itself spawned a very popular sequel. And I cannot wait. I, it's, it's so far in the future. It seems so far in the future. But I cannot wait. So that's my first bullet point. We're, we're going to speed right past that. I'm going to deliver a message, and that message is to Broadway producer Scott Rudin. Fuck you. Fuck everyone involved. Who, I, if, if you're familiar at all with this, you'll know, you'll know why the message is so plainly stated. They, okay, so if you're not familiar, Scott Rudin and the Harper Lee Estate, they recently had a Broadway premiere of a new adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, and they have subsequently been trying to shut down community theater and regional theater productions of an earlier stage adaptation that was written in 1991. They have delivered all these cease and desist letters, and all of these, uh, my friend, uh, Brandon, his, they had been rehearsing the show for a month, and they were set to open, I believe, on March 8th, and they had to cancel the production. They had to eat the cost that came with canceling that production. And now, Scott Rudin, I read this today, Scott Rudin is offering all of these theaters that he fucked over. He's, he's saying to them, you, you can, you know what you can do? You can do our version. We're going to allow you to do the Aaron Sorkin adaptation of Harbilly's To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, right... No, no fee, no charge, no charge. As long as we just all agree that the 1991 version doesn't exist anymore and that we are the ones holding the fucking keys to the gates. Does everyone agree with that? Okay, great. The problem is that most of the theaters, they can't take that offer because the turnaround would be ridiculous. It would be, it's, it's inconceivable that these theaters would be able to uh, turn that around and somehow stage Aaron Sorkin's version. Aaron Sorkin's version, by the way, I don't know if you know this. It involves adult actors playing the child characters, and I find that to be very unappealing. I don't want 
want to see a 40-year-old scout. I don't want to see a 40-year-old gem. No, thank you. No, 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 no. I don't, no, 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 no. You can take it. You can take it. My final note is just a passing thought that I had. I believe I had this thought while I was in the shower. You know how we did, we just did a revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying back in 2011 with Daniel Radcliffe, and then he was subsequently replaced by Nick Jonas, and Nick Jonas even got his own special EP cast recording just to, you know, capitalize on his being cast. Well, wouldn't it be amazing and adorable, and I mean this sincerely, we need to get Tom Holland, the MCU's Spider-Man, but more famously, much more famously, uh, Broadway's Billy Elliot. We gotta get Tom Holland in a revival of how to succeed in business without really trying. Maybe a West End revival, since we so recently did it here in the States. I just want to see his cutie patootie cream pie body just being thrown around stage. I want to see big, burly men throwing him around during the football number. I want to see him do a pirouette, and I want to see him do some tap dancing. And if his shirt falls off in some sort of clothing mishap, uh, wardrobe malfunction, I believe is the more meme-ish term for that, uh, then all the better. Let his, let his torso be bare to the world for that second act is what I say. Okay, those were all of my random thoughts. So let's let's get some show facts, shall we, about Man of La Mancha, this week's subject. Man of La Mancha is an adaptation of a 1959 teleplay that was written by Dale Wasserman, who would go on to write the musical's book. That teleplay would which was called I, Don Quixote, was inspired by the life of Miguel de Cervantes and his 17th century novel, Don Quixote. It should be noted that Dale Wasserman never intended for that teleplay or the musical to be a quote-unquote faithful representation, either of the novel or its author's life. And he often complained about those who made that assumption and would nitpick the works to death. One could argue that after a while, he should have just let that go. But I find it very funny that Wikipedia included that information, that Dale Wasserman was just generally annoyed by nitpickers <laughs> who would like, who would raise, I like to imagine them at a comic con, some sort of convention, raising their hands and going, uh, Mr. Wasserman, are you aware that Miguel de Cervantes did not really hibbidibbidibbidibbidi? <laughs> The I, Don Quixote teleplay originally aired on CBS as part of their DuPont Show of the Month program, where it brought in an estimated audience of 20 million. If you need a better example of how the landscape has changed... Good luck finding it. 20 million people tuning in for that teleplay. Now we can't get anyone to watch Jack All Shit. <laughs> when Wasserman was unable to option his teleplay as a non-musical Broadway play, Albert Mayer had the idea to turn it into a musical. Ultimately, the show would become the 1966 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It originally opened off-Broadway on November 22nd, 1965, at the Anto Washington Square Theater. It opened on Broadway officially on March 20th, 1968 at the Martin Beck Theater before moving to the Eden Theater and then the Mark Hellinger Theater in 1971. The show ran for a total of 2,328 performances. That is fucking impressive. Now, I was confused as to how the show qualified for the 1966 Tony Awards when it wouldn't premiere, if you noticed, I said it wouldn't premiere on Broadway until 68. According to the Wikipedia page for the Anta Washington Square Theater, the page that's dedicated solely to that venue, that venue was, quote, located away from the mainstream Broadway district. And that venue was intended as a prototype for the Vivian Beaumont Theater, which was built within the designated Broadway district. I have to assume that is what made Man of La Mancha eligible for the 66 Tonys. The fact that, you know, it was technically outside of the district, but it was meant to be a prototype for a theater that would be built within the district with time. I I I'm trying to sort of thread a needle here. But, you know, Man of La Mancha didn't even move to the Vivian Beaumont. It moved 
the Vivian Beaumont. It's not a ghost theater. The Vivian Beaumont. Uh, it it didn't move to that venue. It moved to the Martin Beck Theater, as I mentioned. I'm so confused. I'm just I'm Alice, and I'm falling down the rabbit hole. So the book, as I mentioned, for Man of La Mancha, was written by Dale Wasserman. The music by Mitch Lee, and the lyrics by Joe Darian. The original lyricist, I will say, for the show was another another individual entirely. His name was W. H. Auden. He was a poet, but his work was considered, according to Wikipedia, quote, too overly satiric and biting, and was often, quote, attacking the bourgeoisie audience. I would love to know what that show would have been in an alternate universe. I like to think that Don Quixote just points his lance at people in the audience and says, fuck you, you capitalist pig. (laughs) You chicken-necked geeks. How dare you gawk at me? I am Don Quixote. I speak for the people. The director of the original production was Albert Mayer, who we mentioned had the original idea of turning the teleplay into a musical. The musical director was Neil Warner. I, oh my goodness, I should have been citing this position all along. The musical director, kind of a big deal when you're putting together a musical. The musical director. So from now on, we're going to be citing the musical director. The choreographer was Jack Cole. The set design was by Howard Bay. The lighting design was also by Howard Bay, and I should have been citing that position as well. The lighting designer. We're going to be doing that from now on. Costume design by Howard Bay and Patton Campbell, and the original Broadway cast included Joan Denier, Irving Jacobson, Richard Kiley, Ray Middleton, Robert Roundsville, Gino Conforti, John Seifer, and Eleanor Knapp. Additional to Tony Nod. So beyond its win for Best Musical, Richard Kiley won a Tony Award for Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical. Albert Mayer won a Tony Award for Best Direction of a Musical. Mitch Lee and Joe Darian took home a joint award for Best Original Score. Jack Cole was nominated for Best Choreography. Howard Bay won for Best Scenic Design. And Howard Bay and Patton Campbell were nominated for Best Costume Design. So seven nominations in total and five wins. That is a good fucking ratio. Let's get a nice, juicy roast beef plot description for Man of La Mancha, shall we? Yeah, that's right. Tuck in with that fucking roast beef sandwich of a plot, because we're going to be munching on it. I always forget that the show has a framework, but there is a framework. Uh, We begin in the 16th century uh, in Spain. Miguel de Cervantes and his manservant are thrown into a dungeon by the Spanish Inquisition. The other prisoners try to ransack Cervantes' trunk, but a prisoner known as the Governor declares a mock trial will be held to determine what will happen to the writer's belongings. A second prisoner who's very cynical, uh, his name is, he, I'm sorry, he is known as the Duke. The Duke accuses Cervantes of being an idealist and a bad poet, to which Cervantes pleads guilty. But for his defense, he suggests that they put on a play that will involve everyone in the dungeon. That's right, we're firmly in the 60s where... (laughs) I'd like to think nine out of ten musicals were were stylized in such a way that they were always presented by a troupe of actors on stage. Think Pippin. Think, oh, I don't know, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which is, I, I believe, about a oh, fucking troupe of circus performers. I've been dipping into that show because I know it's going to be coming down the pike at a certain point. Not a fan. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, not a fan of Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. The governor agrees to this very uh, crazy idea. They decide to put on this play. So Cervantes applies makeup pulled from his trunk and becomes Alonzo Quijano, a man who has gone mad after reading many books about chivalry and obsessing over the concept of injustice. Alonzo adopts a new name. He becomes Don Quixote de la Mancha and leaves his family to seek adventure with his neighbor and squire, Sancho Panza. Quixote warns Sancho about his arch nemesis, a wizard known as the Enchanter, before attacking a windmill he believes to be a giant. Classic Don Quixote story beats. Upon losing this battle, Quixote realizes he could not have won because he hasn't been properly knighted. He mistakes an inn for a castle and there encounters Aldonza, a prostitute who is consistently propositioned by militiers and their leader, Pedro. Quixote falls for Aldonza instantly, referring to her as his Dulcinea which causes the muleteers to mock both of them. The scene cuts to Quixote's niece, Antonia, and housekeeper visiting their local priest. The two women claim to be concerned for Quixote's welfare, but are clearly embarrassed by how his behavior will affect the family. Antonia is especially concerned that her fiancé, Dr. Sanson Carrasco, will be shamed by association. Dr. Carrasco and the priest set off to find Quixote and cure him of his madness. Sancho visits 
Prince Aldonza and formally asks for a token of affection that he can bring back to his master. Aldonza hands him a filthy dish rag and demands to know why he follows Quixote with such devotion. Sancho isn't entirely sure, though he knows he likes Quixote at the end of the day. The muleteers sarcastically serenade Aldonza and she agrees to meet slash have sex with Pedro later. The priest and Dr. Carrasco speak with Quixote, but fail to bring him to his senses. Quixote is too distracted by a wandering barber who wears his shaving basin as a hat to protect himself from the sun. Quixote confronts this barber and claims that the basin on his head is actually the golden helmet of Mambrino, which makes its wearer invulnerable. The barber gives over the basin, albeit with a great deal of reluctance. Dr. Carrasco is angered, but the priest finds himself impressed by Quixote's outlook on life. The two men leave, having failed to bring the old man home. Quixote charts a path to knighthood that involves him standing watch over his armor throughout the night. He declares that once this task is complete, the innkeeper, whom he believes is a nobleman, will grant him knighthood. Aldonza speaks with Quixote and learns even more about the old man's newfound mission and dream. She begins to warm to him, but is confronted by Pedro, who was kept waiting and now begins to abuse use her. He hits her. Quixote challenges Pedro and the muleteers to combat and manages to win with assistance from Sancho and Aldonza. The innkeeper is dismayed by the fighting, but wearily follows through on his promise to Quixote, granting him the title of Knight of the Woeful Countenance. Quixote makes a move to comfort and aid the wounded muleteers out of a sense of chivalry, but Aldonza chooses to go in his place. The muleteers, led by Pedro, abduct and rape her as a result. Cervantes' play is suddenly interrupted. We are suddenly brought back to reality when a prisoner is forcibly dragged out of the dungeon uh, by the Spanish Inquisition. Despite the intrusion, the play continues. We go back to the fantasy. After Quixote and Sancho are robbed by a group of gypsies, they return to the inn and are soon met by a battered Aldonza. She curses Quixote, rejecting his romantic image of her. She will never be Dulcinea, she declares, only Aldonza. A mysterious figure and his attendants suddenly enter the inn. The figure introduces himself as the Enchanter, or the Knight of the Mirrors. He and his attendants use mirrored shields to blind Quixote and send him spinning into a into a mad whirlwind. They force him to confront his true identity, that of an old man worn down by dementia. Quixote surrenders, and we discover that the Knight of the Mirrors is none only than Dr. Carrasco. Dun-dun-dun! Cervantes tries to end the play on this note, but the prisoners, wholly unsatisfied, threaten to burn a manuscript they pull from Cervantes' trunk. In light of this development, Cervantes develops an extra scene. Quixote, having fallen into a coma, is overseen by Sancho and the priest. Sancho expresses how much he has come to miss his adventures with Quixote and is delighted when his master awakens. But it is Alonso Quijano who greets Sancho, not Quixote. The Quixote identity has slipped away way, and Alonzo believes their adventures were nothing more than a dream. Alonzo, fearing he is quickly approaching death, uh, begins to dictate his will to the priest and is confused by the sudden appearance of Aldonza. She begs him to remember their experiences together, how he once knew her and called her Dulcinea. It is her recitation of The Impossible Dream, a song from the show, that ultimately causes Alonzo to remember his time as Don Quixote. Invigorated, he rises to to ride once more, only to succumb to death a moment later. Aldonza comforts Sancho and states that she will forever refer to herself as Dulcinea. The play ends and the Spanish Inquisition arrive to take Cervantes and his manservant away to be judged. The prisoners, for their part, find that Cervantes is not guilty and hand him back his manuscript, which is a draft of the novel Don Quixote. They sing a final reprise of that song, The Impossible Dream, as the men leave the dungeon and are led to their fate. The curtain comes down, end of show, and end of plot description. For the purposes of researching this show, I didn't into 
to a number of sources, including the 1965 original Broadway cast album, the 2002 Broadway revival cast album, the 1972 film adaptation, and I watched a couple of clips as well from the Tony. So I watched a performance of Richard Kiley uh, delivering the, the song The Impossible Dream from the 1972 Tony Awards, uh, during which he stands in front of a giant illuminated 1966. I think it's safe to assume they were doing a retrospective on past performances that won Tony Awards. I have to assume. Why else would he be performing in 72, standing in front of a gigantic sign reading 1966? Uh, It's it's a very good performance. He simply stands squarely in the middle of the stage. He never moves. He's leaning on his lance, dressed up as Don Quixote, and he delivers it with bold, brassy conviction, and it's fantastic. Uh, Now, comparatively... Brian Stokes Mitchell's Tony performance, which I also watched, you're going to hear this from me a few times, I think, but I'm disappointed to report that despite the fact that, you know, I really enjoyed Brian Stokes Mitchell in the revival of Kiss Me Kate, which we talked about in episode one, uh, here as Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha, he's really telegraphing how hefty his material is supposed to be for him, how important I think it is for him to be playing this role at this point in his life. He's hitting each lyric a little too performatively, and the best example I can give is when he says the lyric from The Impossible Dream, and the world will be better for this. I'm just going to play, well, I know we're not in the song discussion, the deconstruction yet, but I'm going to, I want you to hear that lyric. Let's play that now. And the world will be better for this. My, my impression of that is just, and the world will be better for this. The way that he clips this, there's too much, there's way too much sound in terms of, you know, and I hit this word just so, and now I move my hand this way. It's too calculated. It doesn't come off as warm or inviting at all. It, it, it does, it's, it's a little detached. If he were in college, he'd rightly get the note of, you know, Brian, you think you're not doing a lot, but we need you to do less. <laughs> we need you to do a lot less. Look at Richard Kiley. He just stood, just stood leaning against his lance and he's so captivating you want to watch him you don't brian you're not casting a spell on anyone stop moving your hands anyway the brian the brian stokes mitchell clip does end with a standing ovation but it's it takes a while You get the sense that most people didn't think to stand at the end of the performance, but then they sort of saw everyone. It's just this very gentle, eventual wave of, all right, I guess I'll stand. Now, to be fair, Bernadette Peters and Lawrence Fishburne really seem to be enjoying themselves, so maybe I'm just being a crank. I am also going to be vaguely pulling from memory a production I saw a long long time ago that my college mounted for the purposes of a tour. I believe they took it to Europe as part of a festival they performed as part of a festival. I suppose that's not really a tour. That's just uh, a location. They went to one location in one venue, but they did perform it on the campus, and I remember it being good. The thing about uh, Man of La Mancha is that I I know that it's set in Spain, but with that said, the the casting of Man of La Mancha tends to be really whitewashed to a point that it's sort of shocking. I, I, I was looking online just trying to get a read on how people feel about the show's general casting, and and I think normally the role of Don Quixote is played by a white actor, and then Sancho is played by an actor of color. My college couldn't even get that off the ground. <laughs> they couldn't even find someone of color to play Sancho. And also, I will say, Sancho is also supposed to be a heftier character. Uh, they talk about, I think Don Quixote refers to him as a fat pudding. At least he does in the movie. Uh, did I say the 1972 film adaptation? Did I say that I watched that? It has a really bad reputation, and it's not great, but I wouldn't say that it's nearly as terrible as many would have you believe. All that said, I wouldn't recommend it. Let me, I I realize I got off my original point. Uh, So Sancho is supposed to be a heftier character. For the purposes of my college, I just remember them stuffing like padding in the costume for the very skinny gentleman that played Sancho. (laughs) So when all else fails and you know that your character is supposed to be hefty, just put a pillow in their shirt. It's theater. It'll look real. It didn't. (laughs) I don't need to be too shitty about it, but come on. (laughs) We're we're failing the character on a couple of levels here. It's a white person with padding in their shirt. I think we could have done a little bit better.
that overture. Did oh, did you hear that? If I had the t- if we had the time, I would play the entire overture from the original Broadway cast album. I, I want to wrap it around me like a warm, comforting blanket because this is it's a wonderful overture, and it it gets you excited. It puts you in the exact mood that you need to be in to dive into this show. It's very rousing. You know how people complain about overtures being too short nowadays? I think a lot of overtures are really no longer than a minute, 90 seconds tops. It's because overtures like this exist. Uh, The 2002 revival cuts the overture entirely, which I found to be quite surprising. That is a pretty woman big mistake huge. There is a Spanish language intro that they do for that revival. It's fine, but it just isn't the same. Not really at all. Mancha, or as as we learn in parentheticals, I Don Quixote, Man of La Mancha, I Don Quixote. That is classic musical theater melody number one, and that is why we played it twice. You heard it at the top, and you heard it just now. There are so many standard songs, like songs that have become standards, part of the fucking repertoire, just within this one show. It is truly astounding. Man of La Mancha, I Don Quixote, what a fantastic way to not only get out of the framework and into the fantasy of Cervantes' play, but just what a wonderful way to tell the audience right off the bat that there are masters at work here when it comes to the music. It makes you love Cervantes, and it makes you love Quixote. That is a big part of this production. I think I have that noted later on in my notes. Talk about a role that you have to cast very, very carefully and very, very well, because if the audience is not on board for your Cervantes slash Don Quixote, you're going to be in for a slog of an evening. You got to make sure that that not only can that guy deliver a song like Man of La Mancha, I Don Quixote, but he has to deliver songs like Dulcinea, which is further down the pike. He has to have this loud bravado, this sort of room-shaking Power that it just is going to impress you and charm you at the same time. But he also has to have that that falsetto, that, that beautiful sound that comes with songs like Dulcinea. Dulcinea, Dulcinea, I see heaven when I see thee, Dulcinea, and thy name is like a prayer and Dulcinea is classical musical theater melody, song, what have you, number two. Uh, gorgeous. It's fucking difficult, and I don't, I don't admire anyone who has to find the guy that's going to stand in those fucking boots. But I, 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 I got to tell you, put in the fucking work, or you're doomed. I do not like you or your brother. I do not like. It's all the same as Aldonza's musical introduction into the show. She is looking upon all of the men, these muleteers that she serves at the end, and she is simultaneously disgusted by them. She is so ground down by life that she sees them as an inevitability. She she thinks of men as, as a constant cloud, this fog, this weight that pulls her down. And she is a prostitute, but she tells them, you know, I will never, ever 
ever deemed to touch you or even look at you unless you actually have the money that is owed to me. I know myself enough that I know, you know, I have that worth. She doesn't think too, too much of herself, especially when Quixote begins to refer to her as Dulcinea. That that sort of shows her how little she has thought of herself in the past. But, you know, it is strangely, surprisingly progressive. She even says in It's All the Same that, you know, it's not, she is acting as a prostitute, but that's her choice. If she accepts money to have sex with someone, that's her choice, and she is going to not feel shame for that necessarily. At least I don't, I, that's my interpretation of the character. Uh, you could argue that by the end of this episode, I have too progressive or too liberal of an idea or an interpretation of the character of Aldonza as it's written. Uh, maybe I'm trying to force it through a, through a more progressive lens. Uh, but I, I really, Aldonza to me, you know, Don Quixote is, is a great character that I feel like anyone would want to play, but I think Aldonza is the hero of the show. And if I were directing anyone in this role in a production of Man of La Mancha, I would make that very clear right from the top that Aldonza ultimately is the hero. She, she has gone through life very clear-eyed, and that has come with a lot of pessimism and cynicism, but she sees the world as it is. Don Quixote sees the world as it should be, according to him, and that's where their ideologies clash. Oh, I, I love I love the arc that Aldonza goes on. It gets very dark, and we're going to talk about that even more. I, I know in the plot description, I talk about how she is raped and assaulted, and I sort of moved past that to get to the other plot beats, but believe me, I'm going to examine that even further here in a second. In terms of just the song itself, I love it. I love that it's this really great, bold character uh, song. It really lays out exactly where she is in that exact moment of the show, right when we first meet her. It made me think of Bring On the Men from Frank Wildhorn's Jekyll and Hyde. So Now, knowing Frank Wildhorn, I'm sure he knew what he was stealing from. I'd like to think that he has enough of a context for the history of musical theater that when he wrote Bring on the Men, he knew he, he knew that he was essentially just doing a bad version of It's All the Same. I, 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 by the way, don't you worry, Jekyll and Hyde. I'm going to get to you during an episode of The Snub Club, most likely. You and your 32 different fucking cast recordings. Sometimes, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, sometimes I feel like I was born to talk about you. Jekyll, Hyde, always you wrestle inside me. Always you will. And uh, just, 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 don't fucking go anywhere, okay? Don't leave town, is all I'm saying. I've got my fucking eye on you, and we'll get to you eventually. I like him. I really like him. Tear out my fingernails one by one. I don't have a very good reason Since I've been with him, cuckoo nuts have been in season But there's nothing I can do Chop me up for onion stew Still I yell to the sky, though I can't tell you why that I like him. I really like him is Sancho's big comedic moment in the spotlight. He gets a song in the second act, but I really think it pales comparison to I Really Like Him. I have a feeling it's tough to play Sancho without turning him into a cartoon. When you hear him in the first moments of the original cast recording, it comes off as a little bit maybe too pitched and a little bit too goofy and goony. But with time, I really came to like the sound, the choices that were being made for Sancho on that original album, it would 
would be very easy for anyone to fall into that sort of high-pitched hammy buffoonery, but we need to love Sancho too, because Sancho and Quixote are such a uh, well-bound duo. They are cinched at the hip, and if either performance is half-baked, you're going to be in trouble. You know, you could love Quixote, but if Sancho's a fucking obnoxious idiot on stage who's just mugging for the audience and trying his best to steal attention from the rest of the production, oh, what a disaster. ay 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 This show is too pure. That's what I've decided. This show is too pure. We got it so we got it so right in the original Broadway version. That that album, it's so good just on its own. I, I should say, of all of the sources that I pulled from, don't worry about the movie and don't even really necessarily worry about that 2002 revival. Maybe check out Brian Stokes Mitchell's, you know, version of Dulcinea. But that original album, that's all you need. Little bird, little bird In the cinnamon tree Little Bird, Little Bird is classical musical theater, melody, song, whatever. Number three. Oh, it's so gorgeous that not even its evil reprise from a later point in the show. That's right. There's an evil reprise of Little Bird, Little Bird. Not even that can taint the original song's beauty. I tend to, I, I didn't realize this. I tend to forget that this song is sung sarcastically by the Mulleteers because you wouldn't be able to tell on the original album. The original album's uh, track for Little Bird, Little Bird is so silly silky, smooth. There's this sleepy delivery that doesn't really bear the idea out of the Mulleteers jeering at Aldonza. We get that so often throughout the show. They they harass and assault her so much throughout the show that I would actually like to recontextualize Little Bird, Little Bird, and have that have that be something else. I don't. I don't think that needs to be sung by the Mulleteers. You could go for. You could go with Sancho singing that. You know what I mean. We there's enough of them jeering at a woman. You know what I mean. After a while, that becomes really uh, more depressing than I think was even intended. To dream the impossible dream to fight the unbeatable foe to The Impossible Dream, uh, parentheticals, The Quest. I think most people forget that the full title of the song is The Impossible Dream, The Quest, in parentheticals. That's classical musical theater song number four. Uh, there is a reason why this song broke out of its original, you know, broke out of the original show and became a standard, a, sh- a song that everyone knew at the time, regardless of their association with the show. I feel like everyone has a reference to this day for The Impossible Dream, regardless of age. It just exists in the world, all around us, like... Happy birthday, and don't stop believing. I I could definitely come up with better examples, but I think you get what I'm saying. From the first moment, we can tell we are marching towards a big finish, and I love that. It's not even a tease. It's a it's a promise. They are writing a check that by the end of this show, you're going to be, you should be rising to your feet, you know, as opposed to Brian Stokes Mitchell's reluctant standing ovation at the early 2000s Tony Awards. You should want to leap to, leap right out of your seat during the middle of the fucking show. If it's done correctly, you will absolutely want to. It is just so fun getting to that big finish, that steady marching build that we hear in the background. Oh, it's so fun. Oh, oh, yes. Aha. This is my big college thesis. I've been talking about college a lot, but I would love to write a paper. Uh, I don't want to write a paper. I just want to talk into a microphone. (laughs) Here's my case for most, if not all, of the lyrics in The Impossible Dream applying to Aldonza. I know that Don Quixote is talking about his dream, his quest. For me, this song is really a song that is directly applicable to Aldonza and her journey throughout the show. 
show, the strength that she demonstrates throughout the show. I mean, look at the lyrics. She fights foes. She bears with unbearable sorrow. She bears the weight of being abused. And she she deals with the despair that comes with her with a this fucking fiery attitude that knows no end. She she runs where the brave do not go. She loves Quixote in a way that is chaste and pure from afar. She is scorned and covered with scars, but she fights for what she knows is right. She embodies everything that Quixote strives for. Aldonza, the real hero of Man of La Mancha. I'm fucking planting my flag in the ground, and we're gonna we're gonna circle around it for the rest of our days. Jumping ahead a little bit, the abduction track is where we get the evil reprise of Little Bird, Little Bird, and it's really fucking spooky and unsettling, and this is the point in the show story-wise where it gets to its darkest point because the militiers abduct and rape Aldonza in this moment. Any production of La Mancha that shies away from that brutality and that darkness is not doing anyone any favors. The framework device and its prisoners, that doesn't really have an impact on me. That You know, the fact that they are dealing themselves with a fate that will likely end in death. I know that that is meant to weigh on us throughout the show, but we visit it so rarely beyond the opening. I would think most people would not be affected by it all that much. It's really Don Quixote and Sancho and Aldonza's story more than anything. You know, see, and with that in mind, seeing Aldonza struck down just as she is beginning to change the way she views herself uh, as a result of knowing Don Quixote, that is the real tragedy on display. Aldonza is a character that I feel for much more so than Cervantes and the prisoners in the fucking Spanish Inquisition dungeon. I was spawned in a ditch by a mother who left me there naked and cold and too hungry to cry. I never blamed her. I'm sure she left hoping that I'd have the good sense to die. Aldonza is a song that Aldonza sings about herself, and she is unleashing this torrent of anger on Don Quixote. She is saying to him, how dare you lead me to believe that I had any chance of escaping this inn, this pit of men who do nothing more than jeer at and assault me and rape me. I, I can't, I am so angry with you, you mad fool. This is Aldonza's Lot's Wife. Caroline's song Lot's Wife from Caroline or Change is directly comparable to Aldonza from Man of La Mancha. We have two women here who have been pushed too far. In Caroline or Change, she delivers that out to us, to the audience. She doesn't deliver that to a character, but in the context of La Mancha, Aldonza is, is, is strictly trying to rip open Quixote and make him realize, no, enough already. I am sick to death of you calling me Dulcinea, of you saying that I am this perfect person. I'm not. And I want you to see, now that I have been discarded by these men after having been raped, I need you to see what really happens to women in my position, to women who grew up the way I did. You need to understand how hard it is for me to see myself as anything other than that. Now, the convention, let's just talk about the fact that this exists within the script. This this point that she is raped for the purposes of the show. The convention of a female arc, including assault, is supremely outdated at this point. Uh, in 2019, look Looking back at you know 1960s, it's it's very moldy. That that much is quite clear. Many would go further in criticizing the show, I think, by saying that Aldonza only finds validation through the lens of a man. She ultimately does you know run back to Quixote's side when he is risen out of his coma. She runs back to him and says, you know, you're the one that allowed me to start thinking of myself as being someone who could have more chances and, and lead a better life. But I think that inter- interpretation is a little limiting. The idea that it's only because of Quixote that Aldonza is able to uh, leave the inn and change the way that she's going to lead the rest of her life. At the end of the show, when Aldonza adopts the name Dulcinea, that's another choice that she is making. No one is making that for her except her. Aldonza has always had 
agency and strength, and she's using everything she's observed and experienced of the world to inform how she's going to move forward. There is a definite creakiness in the story's, uh, you know, mechanisms here, and I'm not going to shy away from that, uh, but I don't think that the arc in general is disposable. You don't have to perform leaps and bounds as an actor to view Aldonza as a role that's worthy of realization in 2019. It's all in delivery. I think the big key, if I was directing it, when Aldonza goes to Quixote's side and he is on his deathbed, she has dialogue that is available. I think you can hear it in the 2002 revival if you listen to that. Please try to remember. Is it so important? Everything. My whole life, you spoke to me and everything was different. I spoke to you? And you looked at me and you called me by another name. They provide the dialogue where she says, you know, you're the one who uh, called me Dulcinea. Please remember. In one interpretation, it's it's this woman who's just desperate to have a man remember and continue seeing her as someone who's worthy of life and who's worthy of happiness and opportunity. But I wouldn't direct it like that. And I wouldn't have the, the woman playing Aldonza deliver that dialogue with desperation. This, this thirstiness, this need to have him validate her. You don't have to deliver the words, the the text like that. I think you just need to come at it as she cares for him, and she doesn't want him to slip away. She doesn't want his final moments on this earth to be uh, those of a doddering old man who is feeling shame and and embarrassment and despair. She wants, for his sake, she wants him to remember that fire and keep that fire going. And I think that that's a very pragmatic and practical thing for her to be saying to him. And I think that's how you inform your delivery. Don't, you know, don't have her on her knees. I think many people would have her, you know, gripping his hand on her knees by his bed. Don't worry about that. You know, she is fucking strong. Aldowns is fucking fantastic. And of course, if you disagree with any of this, any of my interpretations or observations, I'm going to say this again. Uh, I'm not a woman. I'm not a woman who's trying to have a career in theater. So I would love to hear anyone's thoughts, especially, of course, especially women. Men, keep, keep, keep quiet. (laughs) You know, we already have a man here just sort of chattering like a fool, like a plastic skeleton coming to life. Ah, la, 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 la. Talk, 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 talk. Um, if, if you disagree, I am 1,000% here and ready to hear alternate interpretations, theories, arguments, whatever you want to give to me. I'm going to give you that email address at the end of the show. Please write to me, write to me, write to me, write to me. When I first got home, my wife Teresa beat me. But the blows fell very lightly on my back. She kept missing every other stroke and crying from the heart that while I was gone, she'd gone and lost a knack. Of course, I hit her back, Your Grace, but she's a lot harder than I am. And you know what they say, whether the stone hits the pitcher or the pitcher hits the stone, it's going to be bad for the pitcher. So I've got bruises from here to... A little gossip, a little... Okay, so A Little Gossip is the other comedic relief song that we get from Sancho, and as I said, it really does pale in comparison to I Like Him. This is when Sancho admits that he hits his wife. We get this lyric about how he hits his wife, but it's okay because she hit him first, and his wife is much stronger than Sancho. So it's fine. It's funny. (laughs) This should probably be altered or cut entirely. I actually thought the 2000 and two revival was going to change the lyrics a little bit, but they didn't. I, I just think the injection of comedic relief so late into the show, so we're, we're just so deep into the second act, it seems like we're uh, needlessly pumping the brakes for the sake of laughs, and I don't really think they're going to come. I think if you really care for Quixote, you're going to be bummed out that he is on his deathbed. I had an idea. I know I'm playing a director here, and I've, I've never directed a full production outside of my time in college, but I would actually remove the, mu- the musical backing for A Little Gossip if you're going to do it and just have it be more of a sad song, you know, where Sancho is trying to lighten the mood, but because we don't have the musical backing, it comes off as, you know, very limp. Like, it's just not working. He can't actually get his master, you know, his master. He refers to Don Quixote as his master. He can't get him to rise and remember like Aldonza ultimately does. And I think that's really sad for Sancho. And I'd like to see Sancho 
deflating. It makes it all the more powerful when, you know, Quixote stands and he says, Sancho, we're going on another adventure. When Sancho gets happy again, that, that would be a much, much more wonderful whiplash swing that I would like to experience. I want to see Sancho truly, I know he gets sad when he dies, when Quixote dies, but, you know, it, let's give Sancho some more opportunities to show more nuance, some more shade. That's just my opinion. I'm not trying to play if you're directing the show right now. That's just an idea. You know, it's just an idea. Okay, the end of the show is, I think in the original Broadway album, there is this really long track title. It's Dulcinea, comma, The Impossible Dream, comma, Man of La Mancha, Reprise, slash, The Psalm. The Psalm is this very interesting, man, it's, it's a thankless job to be the priest because you actually do have to deliver some fairly complicated uh, vocals, some vocalizations, and I just don't think anyone in the audience is going to be thankful for it, it, no matter how beautifully it's sung. I only bring up this whole ending sequence because Brian Stokes Mitchell, the way he delivers his dialogue, it's like he's doing a sketch comedy impression of an old man during these final moments. It is just, it's fucking goofy, and I want you to hear it, so we'll hear that now. You must forgive me. I have been ill. I am confused by shadows. It is possible I knew you once, but... I do not remember. It's got, it's goofy, right? It's just fucking dumb. It sounds like he has cotton or like Werther's originals like between his gums and his teeth. It's, it's, I seem to remember you, but I apologize. I'm a man who is assaulted by shadows. Enough. Just fucking draw it back. Brad Stokes Mitchell was like nowhere near the appropriate age. He, like no one would have considered him old when he actually played this part. So I, I just, the, the voice, Brian, the voice. If only we could go back in time. I, I will say the finale in which the prisoners of the Spanish Inquisition dungeon sing uh, one last reprise of the impossible dream. I don't care about them, but I suppose someone has to sing that classic tune one last time, and so it might as well be the prisoners. Again, good luck caring about Cervantes. I, I just It's a very fictionalized, as I said, telling of the events in his life. I'm not scared for Cervantes. I think the prisoners are like, if you put on a defense like the one you just put on here, I I think they'll find you not guilty, too. And I just want to be like, I don't think the Spanish Inquisition is going to let him put on a play. You know what I mean? I don't think they're going to be as uh, <laughs> as warm to the idea of putting on scrappy costumes and putting on a silly show. I, I think he's going to be put to death. But the, that's just something he's going to have to deal with. The Spanish Inquisition fucked up time. <laughs> If I may say, that is the official song deconstruction portion of this week's episode. And now we are not going to be, no, 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 we're not going to be hearing from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Instead, we're going to be getting a musical shout out to the listener and Patreon donor who suggested that we cover Man of La Mancha. That would be Brad. Thank you very much, Brad, from me. And now you're going to get a musical shout out right now. Let's take it away. Could have done that better. Believe you, the 
Hey, put a little whiskey in this. <laughs> I know that there's already whiskey in it. <laughs> Hello, where's the microphone? Right here? Fantastic. Hello, it's me, Bobby Goulet. Robert Goulet. You might know me from my Broadway credits, including Camelot and Mr. Belvedere. That's right, short-lived Mr. Belvedere production on Broadway ran for two performances. I can't remember a single second of the rehearsal process. Oh, no, why, why am I here? Oh, that's right. I'm giving a musical shout-out to uh, our good friend, Brad, listener to the show, Patreon donor Brad, if ever I would sing to you, it wouldn't be in springtime, ba-ba-ba, Bing Crosby, because in springtime I just like to drink, and if I'm not drinking, I'm thinking it's time to sing along with you, Brad, my friend. There is not nearly enough whiskey in this. <laughs> All right, so, Brad, thank you very much. If you ever, you know, meet me in the astral plane where I exist currently, I died in 2007, then why don't we have a roasted beef sandwich at a little nice place I like to call Heavenly Hamburger. It's a place where everyone who's a fucking angel goes to. That's right. Angels are real, and one of them is me, Robert Goulet. I was just as surprised as anyone. I thought, first of all, that there was no afterlife, and if there was an afterlife, I'd probably end up in hell. But I didn't, and now I'm here, so I hope to see you soon, Brad. Clink, clink. Uh, really, seriously, there needs to be more whiskey in this. Well, I'm not going to sing more. If you wanted me to sing more, you put more whiskey in the mug. Final thoughts on Man of La Mancha. So, I really just want to skip to this question. Did Man of La Mancha deserve to win in the uh, at the 1966 Tony Awards? Did it deserve to win the Best Musical Award? The other nominees that year were Mame, Skyscraper, and Sweet Charity. Now, this is a tough one. I can see a small contingent of people championing, uh, championing, oh boy, oh God almighty, oh, Bobby Goulet, what if you've somehow influenced me? I feel like I am but a drunk. I can see a small contingent of fans saying, I'm not going to try and say the word championing anymore. It doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like a real word, does it, Patty? Championing. Doesn't sound like a real fucking word right now. I can see them saying that MAME should have won over these other titles, whereas I assume most are unfamiliar with Skyscraper. God knows I am. At a certain point, we'll talk about it, but uh, you know, off the top of my head, I, I don't know what the fuck it's about. I would like to cheat and say Man of La Mancha should have tied with Sweet Charity for the award for Best Musical, as did The Sound of Music and Fiorello in 1960. That was the only time that two shows took home the same prize. But I can't be a cheat. I refuse to cheat. It's not in my nature. Let's stick with Man of La Mancha taking home the top prize. It's affecting in a way that Sweet Charity is not, despite the fact that Sweet Charity is this sort of blitz of show-stopping delights. I just, I have to give it to Man of La Mancha. These shows really work for me when they hit me on an emotional level. And that's why I am also, this is sort of surprising to me. I wasn't sure if I was going to rank this against the other of the other shows we've talked about by putting it in the number two slot or the number one slot. I think I just, I gotta go in my gut as I always do, the bacteria in my gut that fucking talks to me. Uh, I'm gonna put it in number one. Carolina Change, I'm sorry, but I know you were only in the number one slot for one week, but Man of La Mancha, you gotta go at the top. You gotta go at the top of the heap. There are just, there are four, fucking four classic songs, no matter what you think about the other ones, that's a ton of just wildly memorable, beautiful music in one fucking show. It, thank you very much, Brad, for suggesting that I talk about this. I'm so glad that I uh, could revisit it through the uh, through the lens of this show. So the the current ranking, which you can uh, cl- you can click on a link on our Twitter profile. You can look at the Google sheet that uh, tracks this ranking as it develops over the course of each episode. Man of La Mancha, you're at number one. Carolina Change, you're number two. Passing Strange, you're number three. Kiss Me Kate, you're number four. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, you're number five. Uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar, you're number six. Shrek, the musical, you're number seven. Uh, Number eight, The Goodbye Girl, and dead last, I'm sorry, Huck, I'm sorry, you're still dead last. Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn at number nine. Who knows? Maybe one day we will come across a show that is worse than Big River. I have a feeling it's Stop the World or I I want to get off. (laughs) 
It's not stop the world or I want to get off. It's stop the world. I want to get off. (laughs) I'm just now realizing I always deliver it in a dirty way, but the title itself is dirty. Oh, stop the world. I want to get off. Show related ephemera. So I could, of course, talk about the trailer for John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Duh. If you've seen the trailer, you would know that it includes the song The Impossible Dream. Duh. I could do that, but duh. That's a little obvious, don't you think? Duh. So instead, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole. It's very easy to do that. I went down a YouTube rabbit hole that began with a 10-second commercial. It's uh, it's a commercial promoting a production of Man of La Mancha starring Raul Julia in the role of Don Quixote and singer Sheena Easton in the role of Aldonza. Uh, I'm going to play that 10-second ad for you now. I'll see you in 10 seconds. See Raul Julia and Sheena Easton in the Impossible Dream musical, Man of La Mancha. You'll remember it for the rest of your life. Wow, 10 seconds goes by so fast. If you're not familiar with Sheena Easton, uh, but you are a big fan of James Bond movies, you would know her as the vocalist behind the James Bond song for your eyes only. You can see so much in me, so much in me that's new. so many albums, and I, I really enjoy her voice. It, it seems like a bit of, more than a bit of a stunt casting situation to have her in the role of Aldonza, but after I watched that clip, I then went into an interview between Sheena Easton and David Letterman, in which Letterman can barely feign any interest in poor Sheena Easton and her career. It's, it's Sheena Easton is very charming and affable, and Letterman is basically asleep at the wheel. He even holds up the wrong album while trying to promote her latest release. And she, poor Sheena Easton, she has to be like, I, that's not my album, I'm sorry. That's the album I put out last year. And Letterman's like, I don't care. Oddly enough, in another YouTube clip, uh, Letterman uh, references uh, another ad for that Man of La Mancha production. Not the 10-second ad that you just heard. I, I couldn't find the one he talks about in this episode of his talk show. But he talks about how audience members are showcased. Uh, if you remember the Shrek ad that we played a while back. It's very similar to that. Just getting audience reactions. And apparently everyone's praising Raul Julia's acting, just saying, you know, oh, what a wonderful performance from Raul Julia. And then one of the guys refers to Easton as what a babe. And if that that isn't a cross-section of Broadway, I don't know what is. People coming out talking about, oh, oh, the acting, and I love the sets. Oh, gorgeous. If I could just compare it to, you know, these six other productions that I saw. Oh, I love the theater. I'm an esthete. I'm an esthete. And then some guy with a half a hot dog hanging out of his mouth that he doesn't even know is there. He's like, oh, what a babe. (laughs) That's Broadway for you. (laughs) Bonus casting for another film adaptation of Man of La Mancha, which I think we are, I think we need that. We need that in our lives. This casting does go against the general idea that, you know, well, most of our actors are allowed to be white so long as Sancho isn't white. Uh, This is a much more from the ground up. uh, I would want this new movie, this hypothetical movie to invest in actors of color. So I would say Javier Bardem or Antonio Banderas as Don Quixote, or if you want to go a little younger, Oscar Isaac. I think those are all really solid choices. We all know that Antonio Banderas can sing. I want to know, I want to figure out if the, uh, these other two guys have any singing chops. Wait, uh, yes, of course, we, Oscar Isaac, he's, a, he's an inside Lewin Davis. What is wrong with me? Of course he can sing. Oscar Isaac as a hot Don Quixote, a little little silly, but I, I would be all for it. In the role of Sancho Panza, I would really like to see Michael Pena or Diego Luna. I think either of them would be really good. And then with Diego Luna, you know, you just put a pillow under her shirt. Just a little pillow. Everyone will think he's a little chubby. It'll be fine. It's movie making. It's movie magic. And then in the role of Aldonza, for some reason, I landed on Zoe Saldana. And I just, beyond that, I I didn't want to cast anyone else. Uh, You know, with these other roles, I had some other options I was throwing out. But uh, Zoe Saldana, I would love. I would love. Again, I don't know if she can, 
if she's ever sung in a role before. Hmm, I suppose I should have done a little bit more research. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel. We haven't been on the musical carousel for a couple of episodes now. Uh, the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Seattle's Got Cattle. Uh, let's, everyone ready? Oh, okay, so let's take it away. Away we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we have taken a step off of the musical carousel, and we find that we are in a production of none other than Grind, the 1985 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. That's right, we're going back into the year that Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, won, and we are going to be talking about Grind. I know nothing about Grind, and I thank you very much for listening, as always. Uh, let's talk about the Patreon page, patreon.com slash musical man pod if you could find it within your heart to be so generous as to give a monthly donation to the show that would be amazing if you let's say agreed to give one dollar a month just a dollar a month to the show every month you would get a verbal shout out a display of gratitude verbally from me in every subsequent episode of the show so thank you brad thank you matt thank you zach and thank you marisol if you were to give three dollars a month uh, not only would you get the verbal shout out every uh, every week, but you will get a special one-time musical shout-out in the style of a composer or a character or a figure that of your choice. If you give $5 a month, not only will you get the weekly verbal shout-out, not only will you get the one-time musical shout-out, but you will, like Brad, like Marisol, uh, like Matt before uh, before you, uh, you will get to decide which show we talk about. You get to determine which show we discuss, and you'll get to choose from that very Google sheet that I mentioned, anything that was nominated or won the Tony Award for Best Musical. It's a free free range. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, not only do you get everything that I've already talked about and discussed and detailed, but you'll get access via the Patreon page, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, to a special series known as the Snub Club. That is a special monthly series. Every month, you will get an episode dedicated to a show that never, never was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. We have already released the episode for Amelie and the next episode to be released the last Wednesday of March uh, will be dedicated to Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. So if you want access to those, you will need to donate $10 a month. Thank you very much. In case you're wondering, the money that is donated to the show goes toward the purchase of cast recordings for the purposes of pulling clips. It will also allow me to rent movie versions of the shows that we're talking about and it will help offset the Podbean costs, the cost of uh, hosting the show through Podbean. If we ever reach $100 in total monthly donations, uh, that will result in a new series being produced by yours truly, known as The Movie Musical Man, in which we talk about movie musicals that we normally wouldn't encounter. So let's keep marching towards that goal, shall we? If you're listening through iTunes, please go into the iTunes store and give us a five-star rating and a, a, a review, a written review. You can stream via Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Please like and retweet all of our posts. And uh, email us at musical musicalmanpod at gmail.com. That's the email that I uh, hinted at earlier in the show. Tell me all of your thoughts on Man of La Mancha. Was I way off base? Are you in total agreement with me? Or are you somewhere in the middle? Something tells me that the chances are that you are somewhere in the middle. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our beautiful music. I, oh! <laughs> God, I did so well last week and this week, it, oh, it got me like a, fucking, like a fucking ghost breathing on my neck. You know what that sound means? though. Mm, that's true. Mm. Yes, just when the fun is starting, mm, comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>